Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. If you would like to hear episodes of this show you may have missed, please go to RadioPetLady.com and visit the podcast library. You can also listen to all the Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with pet experts, including Cat Chat, The Pet Cancer Vet, Good Dogs, The Expert Vet, Exotic Pets, Holistic Vets, Pet Food Advisors, Humane Talk, and Authors on Animals. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content, and is brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Precious Cat Litter, and Waruva, a privately owned pet food company named after the owner's rescued cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Their brands are Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen in Pouches, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brand, created for finicky felines and fussy little dogs. All their cans and pouches are made in a human food facility, which means that every ingredient is good enough for people to eat, if your kitty will share. I am here with a wonderful Saturday's worth of guests. I have Wayne Cavanaugh coming back, the president of the United Kennel Club, to talk about DNA testing. What's up with that? Does that work? Is it legit? Is it any of use to the rest of us or to anybody? I'm, I have my doubts, but he'll fill us in. Then I have Rita Zoe Chin talking about her extraordinary memoir, Let the Tornado Come, which has a lot in it about a horse, but a lot about the human-animal bond. And Steve Siegel is going to talk to us from Best Pet Rx, which is based in New York City, a 10,000-square-foot compounding pharmacy to make uh, medications palatable to dogs and cats. How crazy is that? So lots of interesting things going on in the world. And I am very glad to, to welcome Wayne Cavanaugh back to Dog Talking Kitties, too. Great to hear from you again, Wayne. Hello, Tracy. It was great last time, and I expect the same again. Well, I expect even more, actually, because last <laughs> time we talked about, well, breeding and the harm that it's done to this breed and that breed and undermining health and how the United Kennel Club isn't just a beauty pageant. The dogs have to be functional, have to do things and be healthy, and that's what your kennel club wants to promote. But I want to know about DNA testing. It's something that came up in a, I, I saw an interview you did on the Internet of, of like a sit-down talk interview with, with somebody at a dog show or other. And I thought DNA testing, I've, I've often on the show said, I don't think it's really of any value to pet owners. It was never really intended that way. A lot of people will buy it or pay for it because they have a mixed breed dog and they're just dying to know what is that mix. But that's <laughs> right. really was never the intention, right? Tell us a little about the DNA tests, how they evolved, what their original um, intention was, and maybe how they're being misused or mismarketed. Well, so this is a great. I think that the problem with DNA is it's such a valuable tool, but it also is grossly misunderstood. And I think it's marketed in a way sometimes it's misleading. Um, first of all, right off the bat, uh, you have to realize that the wolf and the dog have 99% of their DNA is exactly the same. In fact, coyotes and wolves are 4% different. So dogs are even closer than wolves and coyotes wow. are wolves. So you're talking about a lot of common DNA there. And then on top of that, we're trying to define how much golden retriever is in a golden retriever, for example. And the answer is not much. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I mean, it 1% be. at most. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. 
Within that 1%, you might be able to find markers that can give you about a 65% certainty in Goldens, but they're at least similarly related. But even at that juncture, my concern is that the sampling that these very well-intended companies did, just not dog people, but very well-intended, um, just isn't complete enough. Now, let me ask you this. Was the original intent of this DNA testing meant to be for the purebred dog hobby so that if somebody wanted to buy a Great Dane, that they could rest assured that that dog was theoretically 100% Great Dane, but it turns out to be 99% wolf and 1% else? (laughs) Was that the original intention? So I, I sort of imagined in the beginning, and I remember when they first came out, they sent me a test for Jazzy back when I was in East Hampton. And I got her from Southampton Shelter. That's the official shelter of the show. And she looks like a lassie collie in her coloring and her markings and the way her ears tip over. But she's built lower and broader, more like she has some kind of a of a sled dog type ingredient to her. Um, right. And so I was just curious, gee, what's that other ingredient? Not understanding that it's just like this infinitesimal little bit of her that even could pop up as Kali. But I thought that this had been developed in the same way that the Jockey Club has such specific information about thoroughbred horses, the description of each horse. Although there always in the day were horse thieves who could paint a horse. You could never change the hair patterns on a horse, and that's how they describe each horse. And they're very serious about them they're only being thoroughbred blood in every single thoroughbred. It's a big deal to them. No interbreeding, no crossbreeding. There's no such thing as artificial insemination. You have to have a stallion mount a mare, and that's the only way she can get pregnant to somehow keep the purity of the thoroughbred line. Does any of that have any place in thoroughbred dog breeding? Because you were also with the AKC for a long time, so you're very knowledgeable about how important is the purity of the blood in a breed. Well, I was involved in thoroughbred racing as well. And oh, I'll be darned. You go back to the jockey club, there, you know, thoroughbred horses go back to two horses. That's right. That's it. That's so right. So that DNA is a little easier to define. However, still, um, going back beyond that, it's much diluted because, I mean, it wasn't as if all of a sudden Mother Nature went, bam, standard bred, bam, thoroughbred, right. bam, workhorse. Right. And the same thing is true with dogs. So, but out of that small percentage that is different between the wolf and the dog, there is some de- definition. And the problem with that is, is it a novelty or is it definitive? And the bigger question might be, is there any such thing as a purebred dog? And in That's the ultimate a sense, question. my answer is, of course, there is not. <laughs> you know, because they're going to have uh, something from Tibet Typically, they're going to have some Tibetan master for some breed from the Pernian Mountains. They're going to have wolf. They're going to have all these other, um, you know, foundation breeds in their background. And just how much of the dachshund or golden retriever or Irish setter is in that DNA is, is, it helps. I mean, you can really get it close. But the sampling, as I mentioned earlier, is an issue. For golden retrievers, for example, they told me, well, one of the labs, when they were investigating this early on, said, um, I said, well, where did you get your samples for Goldens? And they went, oh, you know, no fools are we. We went to the national specialty, the AKC national specialty, where dogs come from all over America. And I said, well, that's great, but you missed all the field trail bred golden retrievers who are not related to those show dogs. Right. You all the dogs in England who probably aren't related uh, for at least 20 generations. The dogs from Sweden and Finland that may not be related. 
So you've really only gotten a small percentage of the gene pool anyway, and you're using those markers to define a breed. So it's, it's a novelty. It's a fun novelty, but I wouldn't bet the farm on it. Well, it's it's fun unless you spend 120 bucks or whatever it is, and you're trying to get some information as a mixed breed owner. That's the part right. that strikes me. There's two things. Okay, I want $5,000 for this Great Dane puppy. And I guess there could be somebody who might say to themselves, hmm, five grand. Gee, that seems like a lot. But if it's a really pure Great Dane from this great line of Great Danes, maybe I should DNA test, I don't know what, the mother and father. Was it ever intended for that use so that if somebody – had what they said was fabulous champion whatever or from a champion line, you could check the DNA in theory of the mom and the dad and I guess then the DNA of the puppy because honestly with puppy mill dogs, which run rampant throughout our culture, rampant. I mean, all the wine runners I get from rescue came from pet stores. Those are 100% puppy mill dogs. And the AKC and other organizations, I hope not the UKC, actively court the puppy mill producers that are, that all get together at the point of distribution to bring in their boxes full of litters of various so-called breeds of dogs, and they're read, and they're given official papers without that, really any proof or documentation. So, papers and DNA is there kind of like a, a difference, a similarity? Well, the source of some registries supporting um, these commercial breeders is a. Boy, that's a topic I'd love to get into someday because it really upsets me. Um, well, but- it upsets me too. It's why I think the AKC has me on their don't fly list because yeah, well, I, might, I went I there. there too. <laughs> I, I guess we both are. But I mean, if you go to the day distribution point in the United States for puppy mill dogs that then fans out across America in trucks that go to Petlands and these other stores where all these puppies are sold – they're actively courting Amish farmers and, and simple pig farmers, people who have simply switched to dogs because it seems lucrative, and courted them to uh, to document their each of their litters with dogs that they've basically given them the papers for. Well, ironically enough, the message there used to be meet the mother. And now the message is let's go down to Missouri and support the large distributors and teach them how to do it better. I'm not buying that. I want people to always meet the mother if they're buying a pure red dog. Thank you. That that define that would eliminate every single puppy mill in the world if people would insist on meeting the mother. Because if you buy a dog through that retail source, you'll never be able to trace it back to the place where it was bred. Um, they come from a backyard puppy mill or commer- – I'm not supposed to say puppy mill, commercial breeder, high-volume breeder. I could say puppy mill. new mill. euphemism. I call <laughs> them puppy euphemism. farms. I mean what – right? And like it goes from the commercial breeder farms? to the distributor to the truck to – and you can't meet the mom. You can't get advice from the breeder because you don't even know who they are. But on the DNA end of that, the slippery slope, and we deal with this every day, is that if people say, I want to DNA that great Dan you're talking about – to make sure it's who it is. Yes. And great, we can DNA the sire and the dam and the puppy. And what that will tell you is 100%, well, close 100% certainty, that that puppy is indeed sired by that champion Great Dane out of that champion female. That's certain. What you don't know is if the great-grandfather was a collie. (laughs) You'll never know that. And the problem is, oh my goodness. Go and, well, the, 
the big problem is that people don't want to go to court and say, hey, you, you're not registering my dog because um, you say it doesn't look like a Great Dane. And I said, well, yeah, it's tricolor and has long hair. <laughs> but if Sire and Dam are, are champion purebred Great Danes, well, sure they are. And they look like it, too. But what you don't know is how far back that goes. And you can't wow. dig up the dead ancestors for four or five generations and find where that one dog was. So it's really difficult to explain to people that if you DNA the siren dam and your puppy, it's not, it's definitive to say the mother and father of the mother and father. It's not definitive to say how far back that goes. And if indeed the grandfather, the great grandfather, the great grandmother or something else. We had a case like that when I was at the AKC. Tell we us, this is interesting. Airedales. We had a black, black Airedales, which were meant to be tan. Yeah. Caramel yeah. and, color. and the Siren Dam or the Siren Dam. My guess is that either it was the most incredible, crazy mutation in the history of dogs or the great-grandfather was a Labrador. One of the two. Wow. <laughs> you know, but wow. the Siren Dam tested as the Siren Dam of these puppies. So does that mean they're Airedales? Mm, uh, not for me. Wow. Um, so you're going to go on the visual in that case. Indeed. And, and I think the visual will tell you a whole lot more. Although, on the other hand, um, I once had a call from a boarding kennel in Vermont telling me they had the best pointer they've ever seen. Uh, and I really need to come up and see this. And it was spectacular. And I knew exactly um, where it came from. It was a very responsible, lovely person who was elderly and, and hearing Lissetta got with her pointer. Uh, <laughs> and this particular puppy looked exactly like a pointer. But I knew whose mother was. So, you know, that oh, worked darn. So that you were in a kind of, if you were the head of one of these major dog organizations in a moral quandary, you have a pointer that could win, I don't know, the UKC championship of oh, the year yeah. based yeah. on looks and behavior and characteristics. And it would be right down to the, to the dollar just what they should look like, except for yeah. the mother is another breed. Yep, absolutely. So, and, so you know, we see this in, in, you know, in some field trial breeds. You'll look at these uh, at a field trailing Lissetter that has, doesn't have a lot of hair and is kind of small and has a straight up tail. And you think, boy, I wonder when the pointer came in that cross. Now, I'm not opposed to that if you're making better dogs. And that's where I'm unusual. That's interesting. But I'm like very that. much opposed to not telling people you're doing that. All right. So here's yeah. a question. Um, if you've come in late, you're listening to Dog Talk and Kitties, too. I'm talking to Wayne Cavanaugh, who's the president of the United Kennel Club, which is a fantastic organization. Anyone who wants to start showing their dog or just wants to get into that world, go to a UKC show. I think you're going to have a great experience. Real Dogs for Real People is their really cute um, and, and valid moniker. What about something like chocolate standard poodles? Now, I knew a couple of people when I lived in L.A., they had to have a chocolate standard poodle. And I said, that's funny because growing up, I only thought there was white, black, and apricot. I didn't know there was such a thing as a brown standard poodle. Well, said the woman who had an advanced degree from Stanford and smart as a whip. She said, actually, I think it's a recessive gene because, you know, Abigail's a little strange. It was a mother-son breeding. They have to breed back in order to get the brown. Now, and then I met two other people that had chocolate standard poodles and were probably heavily inbred. Is that true? Were they? Well, it doesn't matter about being inbred or not. Um, these colors can come about. And, um, you know, when it, random. there is a, yeah, there is, there is random colors. And the inbreeding will accentuate these things. It'll bring it out. 
in a dog, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it caused this thing. Um, but people who are yeah. just breeders of chocolate standard poodles, because you'll see them advertise, many of them must be puppy mills, but you do see them on the internet, and that's what they're selling, chocolate standard poodles, not like column ABC with other colors. So must yeah, they have done incest in order to get that color repeatedly? No, it can pop up. The thing that amazes me, though, is how this market for odd color dogs is always a hit. It just amazes me um, <laughs> that um, you know that these things can pop up. Now, brown is an acceptable color for poodles. Oh, interesting. You know, black, blue, cream, gray, silver, white, red, silver, beige, and all wow. sorts of brown. And they call the brown cafe au lait. And it's, it's an absolutely allowable color oh, in every darned. country in poodles. Um, now you just don't it, see them that much in the show ring. You see the blacks and the whites. Right. And they're the ones who win. Um, and that's why. It's, you know, it's, yeah. It's a funny say, thing, well, isn't it's, it? It's hard to get a good silver. Well, maybe it's not. I, maybe just because they've been shown blacks and whites so long. But also, you know, party color occurs naturally in standard poodles. Um, that's an absolutely natural occurrence. And we've seen it in the eight. You can look at paintings from the 1800s and see party color poodles. Um, and now when people hear the know, word party. It doesn't mean like a party animal. He means like a P A R T I <laughs> with an I. Yes. And you I'm see sorry. it in, in, it's fine. You see it in Cocker Spaniels and English Spaniels. You'll see yeah. those mixture of colors. That's normal in those breeds or in the show ring. It's apparently totally right. normal in all these breeds, right? Yeah. I mean, technically it would be a piebald gene, which would be, um, white and black or white and brown or white and, with a base color of any of the darker colors. Um, but it's acceptable. Um, in um, certain registries and not in others. And that's been a great debate. Um, our criteria here is very different from everybody else's. Um, if it occurs naturally in history, if you can show me that in 1848, there was a, this color occurred and can naturally occur without crosses, that's fine. If it doesn't um, mean it's linked to a disease, a genetic disease, that's fine. If it doesn't prevent it from doing its job, for example, a hot pink Chesapeake Bay Retriever couldn't hard hide in the marsh. No, it would be a problem. Although it's yeah, a, I'm, a problem. I'm a pink nut, so that might be a dog I would embrace. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the, the um, it could do its job. And we see people breeding for odd colors on purpose, and almost all, I mean, Silver Labs is just a pet peeve of mine. I don't you know, even know about that. What is it? A great it's not possible. You have to somewhere back there, there and, and I'm sure there'll be people that will defend this, but, but I'm telling you, the Labrador Retrieval Club of America, um, geneticists, scientists, everyone that studied this has said the same thing that has been our opinion for a long time. You can't get one without crossing to a Weimaraner. Yay and, for Weimaraners. I was going to say, if you want a silver lab, why don't you just get a Weimaraner and, exactly. and, and, <laughs> and expect to spend the rest of your life catering to their emotions? Well, that's another story. <laughs> DNA. The DNA for a mixed breed dog, it, it explains why this DNA testing for a mixed breed dog is pretty silly because the one that I did on Jazzy said she was a border collie. Now, there's no black on her and there's no just tips of white. She's caramel colored like Lassie and she does doesn't have border collie ears and she doesn't move like a border collie. She's not slight like one. She doesn't move close to the ground. She is in, in no way a scent or a sight or a herding dog. It's like really well, a bit, but more like Lassie, you know, Timmy's down the well kind of thing. Yes. Not like a border collie. Let me go find some sheep. I'll see you in about eight hours. 
right. My Bambi, who listens to the show all the time, has the cutest dog and a real rascal. He eats entire rotting stingrays on the beach kind of dog and one of her really good cowboy boots. His name is Bean. He comes from Corgi Aid Rescue. He looks like a Pembroke Welsh cardigan corgi. I mean, right down to the ground, down to the crookedy front legs, you name it. She sent in that DNA test. No trace of corgi, according to them. No trace. I mean, if they're going to pull off these tests, shouldn't they make you send a picture so they can at least come up with something that will appease what you've got in front of you? Because (laughs) DNA is not telling them what the dog is that's in front of you. It may be old school, but shelters, um, and I, I volunteered a bunch of shelters doing this, is just that, walking in and going, actually, that's pro- just looking at it, yes. phenotypically, my guess is that it's that. And, and really, the challenge there is we often talk about a mixed breed dog as being, oh, it's a collie lab mix. Well, it's probably not. Yes. Typically, a collie doesn't get loose and breed a lab. And and what about chow? They call them. What I, they keep talking about chow mixes. Who has yeah. seen chows walking <laughs> to the United running States? loose on the street breeding well, dogs? Breeding right? to anything it can a chow mix because it has a yeah. black dot on its tongue or black patch. It's like don't be ridiculous. Yeah, that pigment shows up in a lot of breeds. Yeah, and, and when you go, when you really think about it, these dogs probably are mixed for generations and generations. It's, I, you know, rarely you're going to have an Afghan bulldog roaming <laughs> down the street together and get hooked up. But we see, you know, we hear these, these people saying, yes. this is definitely part this, part that. Yeah. Maybe part, but how long ago and what else is in there? Right. And at the end of the day, looking at the dog, observing its temperament, which is, I mean, your border collie, that would be, that stealth temperament is undeniable. That yes. working gene is That's undeniable. That's right. You would know more by that behavior Agreed. and that genotype and that phenotype than you would by any genetic. That's right. It's a great novelty. It's wonderful fun. But boy, as far as hard science go, I'm not sure it's there yet. Maybe it'll get there someday. For me, it's not there yet. And I'm sure some could argue otherwise, but for me, it's just not there. Well, I, uh, my only thing I can say about that boarding place in Vermont that had you look at that, that German short-haired pointer, I hope that dog gets to go to a dog show and win. It'd be just so <laughs> funny. I hate to be so mischievous, but it would be just so great if he won his whole division and then only six people actually knew. Well, now a few it more than that be. since they've heard the show that his mom was really from another another breed. Wayne, and of course, what could happen there is they could breed that beautiful pointer yes. to a set, to another pointer and come out with a whole litter of long-haired setters. You know, this is the challenge of genetics. It's not an That's exact, right. It's not That's exact. right. When we play God, we we better watch out because the other God will laugh at us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. It's great talking to you again. I'm sure you'll be coming back. There's so many other topics to do with pure breed dogs and showing and all these issues. And it's just so great to have someone who knows so much about it and for such a long time. Plus, you even knew about thoroughbred racing. We clearly have to have continue our conversation sometime soon. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Great. Thank you, Tracy. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was fun. Take care. And everybody that wants to go to a dog show, find a UKC show. You'll see a very different experience. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We'll be right back after this quick word. Support for this show comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in their oils. 
Support for Dog Talk also comes from Precious Cat Litter, created by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who wanted litters that would appeal to kitties naturally and protect their health and are all low dust for the health of all members of the family. Their newest litter is Touch of the Outdoors, made with field grasses that provide environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entice them into the litter box with the natural scent of the outdoors. I am back with Rita Zoe Chin, who wrote Let the Tornado Come, a memoir. You might have read about it in the New York Times. That's where I read about it. And it's more remarkable and more amazing than even I thought it might be from the review. And there's a little bit of sprinkling of dogs in it. So for dog talk, I guess it counts. It's really heavily about herself and her extremely challenging childhood and a horse who had an extremely challenging background himself and how they fixed each other and helped each other. And it's a book like nothing else I've ever read. And I'm really excited to welcome you to the show, Rita. You have done an amazing job. Every page that I read, I thought, how could she be such a great writer and have lived this scary, difficult, complex life? Do you look back and think and wonder that yourself? (laughs) Wow. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, you know, no, because honestly, I don't um, sort of. I don't spend a lot of time thinking what a great writer. <laughs> I guess that's just as well, or you'd be you'd get frozen and paralyzed, right? Well, I, you know, I think that as a writer, I'm always looking at pages and thinking, oh, I could have done that a little. You know, I, I want to like tweak it or fix a yes, sentence. Yeah. So it's yeah, it, I'm always kind of struggling with with that. Was doing it well enough, I think. Well, we have, uh, there's a, a lovely, Simon & Schuster has done a beautiful job with the book, and there's a galloping horse at the beginning of each chapter. But dogs were in your life as a child, and they're definitely in your life as a grown-up, right? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I just got back from a long walk oh, uh, with my three dogs. Uh, <laughs> so tell a little bit about them so that when we talk about the book and you read from it, people understand that you are maybe not in this book a dog person but you're you're a dog slash animal human nature person and and that's what i really love about the book your your awareness of nature and animals and how much they can help us and mean something to us so tell about the three dogs you have absolutely thank you yeah I, animals are definitely my saving grace and always have been and i am a huge dog person um i have three right now i have a 15 and a half year old uh, dachshund jack russell oh. mix Oh my! Uh, yeah, so she appears in the book with her brother, who sadly is no longer with with me, um, and in the physical plane. Um, and and then I have two whippets. Oh so my goodness! They're, <laughs> yeah, they're they're like the smaller greyhounds. Yes, and they're very delicate. They're very delicate and interesting. They always seem trembly and panicky and anxious looking to me. I've spent a lot of time in England where whippets are kind of like a household pet. And I'm always thinking, oh God, don't jump off the sofa. You'll break that little tiny toothpick of a leg. Or why are you trembling and why are your eyes so big in your head? Given that <laughs> this book is a, really an extraordinary journey not just to a very difficult childhood, but fascinating to me, uh, your exploration of what it's like to have panic attacks and to have your life overcome by panic attacks. And there's a lot of extraordinary books have been written about depression and about various other things, but I've never read anything about panic attacks, the kind of a panic attacks that you began to have in adulthood that began to dominate your life, to paralyze you. And and I wonder, is there any chance that those is there any chance that those two little dogs represent that kind of vulnerability, that kind of anxiousness that you in the past felt until you 
did such an amazing job of being able to, at least on some level, overcome the panic? Um, well, you know, what's interesting is I, I guess it, it depends on where you're talking about the two whippets that yes. I have. Yes. They are not trembly. They are some of the most calm dogs I've ever met. In fact, um, one of them, his father is a therapy dog, and I've used him in some therapy situations, too, because he's just so calm. Now, when you say in some therapy situations, you worked with tr- you now work with troubled teenagers, right? I do. I absolutely do. And I've used both my dogs and my horse um, wow. to help me with, with that. With That's them. pretty cool. And, and when I read that in, in your bio, I thought, what a cool thing that you, who could better understand a troubled teenager than somebody who wrote the book? Now, you wrote the book on being a troubled teenager, but if anybody had a good reason to be troubled, I guess you wrote that book, too. I mean, you did write the book. It's called Let the Tornado Come. It's uh, quite extraordinary what you had to put up with in terms of your family of origin and these people that uh, were supposed to be your, your parental units. Wow. I think you did an incredible job and an incredible job of making a marriage and finding a loving man and finding a way to, to make a life together. It's a very uplifting book, but there's a lot. And thank God for your sense of humor because there's a lot of <laughs> very like, I began to think, oh, I can have a panic attack too. And your description is like, yeah, we should worry about everything. Like the flower pot's going to fall off of the balcony. When I go out the door, I shouldn't go out the door. But if I stay inside, the floor will break. I mean, it's like, wow, pretty paralyzing. I'd love, <laughs> I'd love you to read this section. It's, it's one place that refers to, to your dogs at the time um, as an adult. It's pretty darn funny, but I think it's it's really great. We don't have to set the scene other than to say that the woman who was your biological mother definitely needed replacing. So let's let's if you would start reading the chapter that that refers to how you went in look of a, of a replacement mother. Okay, absolutely. A few days after I resolved to find myself a mother, on a day when I was courageous enough to travel the two miles to the local grocery store. I scoped out potential mothers in the produce aisle because the way a woman chooses her fruit and vegetables says a lot about her. I watched women delicately cradle tomatoes in their fingers and others tear them roughly off the vine. I watched women knock on watermelons, shake water off romaine, stuff their bags with fiddlehead ferns. When I spotted a potential candidate, I'd smile at her and ask her how she planned to cook her vegetables. Most women love to talk about what they're making for (laughs) dinner that night. Oh, Brussels sprouts are easy. You just roast them in the oven, cut them in half, drizzle with olive oil, a little salt and pepper, and you're set. 400 degrees. Delicious. After a few trips to the produce aisle, I'd acquired several cooking tips, but no mother. (laughs) It had been more than two months since my first panic attack and almost as long since I'd driven farther than the five-mile radius on our local country roads, and I had to face what I'd become a woman who accessorized her outfits with medical gear and security devices. Even Meet the Parents was losing its charm. I needed a mother, fast. So I called the dog sitter. (laughs) (laughs) My plan was simple. One, find a sweet and nurturing older woman who loves animals. Two, invite her over for a trial visit with my two dogs. Three, charm her with my sad but eager eyes. Four, become her daughter. (laughs) When the dog dog sitter arrived, I was instantly disappointed. For one, she didn't smile, and she didn't acknowledge my two dogs, now in a frenzy of tail wagging at her feet. But I was willing to forgive the first impression. She had every right to be wary about entering a stranger's house at night. 
So I smiled at her and knelt down to introduce her to my dogs, giving them both a good scratch under their collars. What breed are they, she asked, still standing. Maybe she had a bad back, I thought. They're Jack Russell Dachshund mix. I rescued them from the pound when they were 10 months old. Littermates. The white one is Aramis and the black one is Starlet. Pound dogs are the best, she said. I can work with this, I thought. <laughs> Come, sit down. Can I bring you a cup of tea? I took the opportunity to quickly check my pulse. Don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, I told myself while the water rushed into the kettle. Of course, I panicked. <laughs> then I sat at the other end of the couch with the dogs between us and shakily held my teacup. The dog sitter looked at me. Aren't you going to, you know, leave? Oh, I thought I explained. I wanted this to be a get-to-know-you visit. It's just that people usually run a few errands or something, so their pets and I have a chance to get to know each other. Was this woman kicking me out of my own house? If it's okay with you, I'd prefer you guys get acquainted while I'm here. As she sighed and looked up at the TV, I examined her profile, the sharp point of her nose, the kinky, fair hair obscuring the side of her cheek. I wondered if she had been attractive when she was younger, if she had smiled more then. There had to be some way I could connect with her. I'm a writer, I volunteered. But I haven't been writing lately because I've been going through a pretty intense bout of anxiety. And that's when I learned the quickest way to get rid of a dog sitter. The whole book has that poignancy and your humor. You don't poke it at yourself. It, it just, it makes it possible to empathize throughout the whole book for how much anguish you're in. And each time you're having the anguish, it's like you're kind of entitled to it. I mean, given what you had been through. And the discovery of your horse, Claret, and going back and forth with learning to ride and learning to be a rider and having, as a child, always yearned for um, for a horse. I'm wondering about that there's early on a German shepherd that comes into your life when you're supposedly going to have a happy family with your father, which is a hoodwink situation that happens. Did that German shepherd not function for you then? You didn't have panic attacks then, but your life was pretty awful. Did he not function in some stress-relieving way? Because you don't write about it, and given that you're an animal person, I, if he didn't, if he did, then you would have written about it, I think, but maybe not. Explain, I was waiting for something to happen with you and the German shepherd. He could cuddle with you at night or something. Oh, you know, it, unfortunately, um, Lady, I loved Lady, and, and I didn't write about her in the book in part just because I, some, I had written more about her in an earlier draft, but things get cut, you know, and sure. um, so um, she actually was very comforting to me, but she was also very much my father's dog, and right. um, he, he he's the kind of man who didn't um, sadly respect, like, little dogs or other kind, you know, but he wanted a German shepherd that would right. be his and that would be right. obedient, so yeah. She, unfortunately, I mean, I would have given anything to have her in my room at night. <laughs> oh, I see. Right. So he was, she was your father's dog and therefore treated you a bit like your father. There was no warm yeah. and fuzzy. No, she was warm and fuzzy. She was wonderful. Whenever I had the chance, I was would pet her. I would hold her rawhide bones for her. I don't give my dogs rawhide now. but we did um, in those <laughs> days. I used to hold one for my cocker spaniel Amalfi, too. He couldn't hold it himself. He was the little prince, so I held it while he gnawed on it. Is that what you did for her? I absolutely did. And, you know, and I would really get into watching her. I'd be like, oh, that was a good bite. You know? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. You're the only person I've ever met that did that. It's like, okay, I'm holding a dog's rawhide because it's way too much trouble for him to hold it. But... <laughs> It's sort of fun to do it. Oh, my God. It's good. We're, we're all just nuts about animals. 
You know, the thing that, that your book really helped me understand in, in ways that I only could kind of intellectually before, but now I can personally, and I think it's one of the great values of Let the Tornado Come, is that the whole issue of post-traumatic stress syndrome and all of these returning veterans from these awful wars that have done two and three and four tours of duty – your book explains what a panic attack is. It explains what post-traumatic stress syndrome is. It explains it by describing it, by letting us feel your extreme pain and understand it and feel it. And I've never really understood before these veterans who have the dog by their side all the time and, the, and why the value is to be able to touch that animal many, 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 many times a day. And I guess that that's really what Claret, your horse, provided you with as well as your dogs. But do you often think about these post-traumatic stress syndrome service dogs and you know inside out what they're doing for the people that they're helping? They really need to be with them all the time, right? I mean, it's not like you just take a pause. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's it's an interesting th- thing with PTSD because, it, you know, it's the moment when you're finally quiet and calm, you know, that in war that, you know, you're, you're right. surviving and you don't have time to be, you know, afraid or panicked. Yes. Um, but you come to these moments of calm or quiet and that's when it happens. And being with the dogs, I think of it a lot because they're just, they're so unbelievably grounding and, and pure in this way that... Um, I, I don't know any other thing in the world like that. that. That does that. And Clara did it for you. You you talk in, in going to this therapist and that therapist, much of it, which is because of who you are, so funny. But you, you <laughs> talk about the science behind that part of the brain where panic happens and adrenaline. Talk about that a little bit because it would be interesting to people, um, you know, just kind of scientifically – and I, and I do think that the touch of animals that is often touted as lowering our blood pressure and having these kind of general good, feel-good things, for someone who has these emotional triggers, it, it's kind of a reset button, right? It, it definitely is. And then, you know, the, the case with my horse, it, what's interesting is, you know, panic is very internalized because, you know, basically what happens is the brain perceives something it thinks is dangerous. And it can be something innocuous that you don't even know. And it sends the body into fight flight. So you have this whole physiological response that happens, you know, the pounding heart, tunnel vision, you know, the shakiness that it directs blood away from, you know, your hands and into you know, the major muscle groups. And so it's a very strange feeling and, and it's scary. And so you start to become afraid of having that, that thing yes. happen to you again, yes. the panic. And so, um, yeah, I think that the, with it becomes a kind of self perpetual like you were saying earlier, you know, you start to become afraid of everything. Is this going to trigger it? What about this? And and what being around the horses does, aside from, like you mentioned, you know, the, the physiological, like, lowering of blood pressure, is that it, it forces you to be more external with your focus instead of internal. And horses in particular, because they're flight animals, they're wired to do the same thing all the time, which is to flee. Yes. Um and so being around them and seeing that kind of externalized, it, it's, it's surprisingly calming and reassuring to know that, okay, this, is, this exists in the natural world. And, it's an interesting and, um, kind of paradox. And then, of course, you had a horse with extreme issues. And he, some of them yeah. turned out to be physiological, throwing his head up, and you had to do all these tests to find out why. But he was one of those horses that other people would give up on. But for you, you must have felt some kinship. And I think a lot of us, when we adopt dogs or, or dogs find us, however they find us, and sometimes kitties, we, we can really empathize with their issues or what we imagine are their issues because they kind of allow us to have some of those same feelings that are bottled up inside us of feeling unloved or feeling frustrated or feeling 
abused, which is a highly overused word, but someone like you who had so many abusive issues in your life, psychological kind of more than anything in a way, I wonder if being around animals that have, have had a not great beginning is a way to kind of be nicer to yourself. If you can be nice to them and empathize with them and be patient and generous with them, do you think it helps you to be that way with yourself or with the other teens that you're now helping as an adult? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it helped me. It, 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 it does. Um, with Claret, it was actually really interesting because, you know, all these professional trainers were telling me to get rid of him. Yes. And, um, and I was a novice writer, but I recognized the, the, that thing in him that, you know, that you're talking about. I, and I trusted that. I, I thought, oh, he's afraid. And, you know, yes. they wanted to tell me he's a jerk or he's a bad horse. And I was right. like, no, he's, he's panicking. Um, and so to, to, to see that and recognize that so clearly, um, yeah, it, it definitely, it's a loop and it does come back. And it, it was very helpful to me. And, and working with the girls has been extraordinary um, because some of them are really troubled and I, I worked with one in particular who had just an incredibly flat affect and I I had a hard time with her. I just couldn't get her to really respond to me. And I brought her to meet my horse and just, you know, being near him, touching him, looking at him, um, all of a sudden she was a different person. I just watched wow. her blossom. It was incredible. What yeah. a great feeling. We've unfortunately run out of time. I had something else I wanted to read, a very lyrical, poetic passage of at the end of the book of you riding Claret and, and feeling this oneness with him and this oneness with nature. Um, I just, I marvel that someone who's been through a life as hard as yours and then been through a reaction to your life of these crippling panic attacks is is a writer of such lyricism and then you're this totally outgoing affable charming person in real life and you reach out to help other people it i think you are just a tribute to the human spirit rita i think what you what you've been able to overcome and turn into something very kind and smart and funny and interesting and help other people it really it it's very touching to me very moving and and your dedication to claret we've we've all had that horse that everyone says is dangerous you can't even go on the wash rack get rid of that horse it's going to kill somebody and you're like no i think i i think i can feel his pain and i'm going to help him through the other side and you did and it's a it's a wonderful book it's a great book for people who love people, not just people who love animals. And and you you come out of it as somebody very lovable. And I'm very glad that you have found love in your life. You deserve it. Oh, wow. Gosh, thank you so much. I'm really honored. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And I, I hope everybody, especially if you don't have a dog or a horse and you just want to read a great human story, read Let the Tornado Come. It's terrific. Have a great day, Rita. Oh, I look forward to your you. next book whenever and whatever it is. Thank you so, so much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. We're going to be right back after this quick word with Steven Siegel from Best Pet Rx. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feel Away for Cats and Adaptil for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feel Away and Adaptil spray, plug-in diffusers, and the new wipes are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues. They can reduce problems in a multi-cat household and can help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Adaptil collars are available from veterinarians and can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Steve Siegel and this extraordinary company, Best Pet Rx, that exists right under our noses in Manhattan, this huge facility making 
delicious concoctions of medications that dogs and cats otherwise wouldn't want to take. What an amazing business. Steve, I'm so glad to meet you. I met you through Sue Ettinger, the pet cancer vet on my show, The Pet Cancer Vet on Radio Pet Lady Network. And I was just totally amazed by this business. And here you are right in Manhattan delivering overnight the same day to the boroughs. What, did, do, when you tell people in your elevator speech or at a dinner party, what do you do? Do people think that's just like the nuttiest thing they ever heard? Or they're like, oh, good, I want to place an order. It's kind of both. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like, actually kind of both. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's, you know, all of a sudden you start getting like, my pet's on so-and-so. And, you know, and I don't understand why. I'm like, well, you get a lot of questions about it. Yes. A lot of people ask kind of how do you go into it because it's not something that people think of as as a, as a career or as a business. And yet, when you first started, were you based in Manhattan? We always were. We were. We started originally in Manhattan. Um, it was the way it worked out was just we had a situation where we were able to build a facility. We had access to a facility that we could start from. And um, it was at some of the equipment that we needed and had some of the space. And it just turns out that there was such a high concentration of pets in Manhattan, too, that it just made sense to be there. And then we wound up just staying there just made more sense. I think from a delivery standpoint, just a total logistical standpoint, it just it was just you know. It's you so surprising because we don't think of of you're now you aren't a pharmaceutical company or are you? Are you considered a pharmaceutical company? You basically take medications that already exist, and so many of our dogs and cats won't eat them. They just won't. They spit them out. They find a way. They clamp their teeth together. They froth at the mouth. I'm just describing three of my dogs, for example. And you turn them into something that you can either swallow or chew as a tablet or as a paste, and they have to like it. You have this, I think, completely crazy idea that if your cat won't eat the way you won't eat the the compound you make, let's say chicken flavor or fish flavor, you will keep on at no extra expense making that same thing in a flavor and in a way that your cat will like it? How did, how yeah, did we, not lose money on that? I don't understand. Cats don't like anything because what, do you have like a magic wand? <laughs> well, part of it is just, we, we've kind of done some tech. We've, you know, invested a lot of time in research and technology and improved upon what's available. So there are things that you do with regards to palatability for specific pet, and there are techniques that technology that if you employ it the right way, you can improve the palatability so that the pets are really more attuned to take to mask some of the, the smells and some of the some of the things some of the flavor aspects of it. Think of it kind of like, you know, priming a wall before you paint it. Well if you can neutralize the flavor or odor of a medication before you apply the flavoring to it, now all they taste is the flavor and not the medication or all they cement it, all they smell. So it's kind of one of the improvements that we've done on existing technology. Now, did you get the idea from pediatric? I mean, suddenly I'm realizing, which I didn't before, that many pediatric medications are made with some horrible fake strawberry color and flavor, and all kinds of medications for little infants and young children are made, I guess, more palatable for those little creatures too, right? Yeah, they are. And it's, uh, I mean, Compounding's been around for a while. Um, it's been around in human health for a number of years, especially, obviously, pediatrics. It's used a lot. It's also used in some of the specialties, like oncology, where doses have to be made in body by body weight. Oh, I see. To, so there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of history with regards to it. With regards to animal health, same thing is, obviously, a lot of it started with the fact that commercially available doses weren't around and that you needed to have 
something that would work on a pet that was smaller than what you could potentially get in a commercial tablet. But it would still have to taste delicious. And that's the part that was so curious. I could see, okay, you have to make something for the four pound chihuahua, but will he spit it out or bite you if he doesn't like it? Because, you know, Chi-Chi's can bite you if they're not happy. I mean, at what point did you go, I think we're going to better corner the market on chicken flavor or something? (laughs) No, I mean, it's actually, we have now over 30 flavors available in just individual flavors. We have um, organic flavors because obviously you've got people that want organic flavors. Oh, flavoring. that's funny. Um, there's, I mean, you know, and basically different species like certain types of flavors. There's also under bases that, are, that you're using too, that the medications are actually made with specific bases that enhance the flavoring and also enhance the availability of the drug when you're actually using it in the body. So The bioavailability so the body can absorb it better. Correct, and and there, these bases don't make these bases don't contribute to the flavoring necessarily, but they do improve the palatability and the bioavailability. So it's just more of a question of what's the right base for the right species, um, and then at that point, you know, how do you make it more stable? And then again, then you take the technology of what we've employed, which is how do you better mask the flavor, and then do a we so we have a proprietary process that we do that goes on top of these species specific bases that normally didn't exist before. And that's kind of where we've really taken it to the next level. So that's your secret sauce. That's the best pet RX secret sauce is the proprietary layer. It And it does. And it, I mean, from a palatability standpoint, the palatability is certainly better. Obviously we have issues where pets just don't take it. Sometimes, you know, you think it's, you know, a cat will take a solution and they won't. Um, So, Flavor changes are probably less common. It's more format changes, going from uh, a solution to a capsule to a transdermal to a micro tab to how whatever. does transdermal work? Those are you make a patch for people? No, they're actually there's different gel technologies that are used. Um, you know, you think of it in terms of like a transdermal patch, like the pain patches and yes, things like yes. that. Well, sometimes you can use a patch on a pet. It depends, but those are usually commercially made. Most and they don't really stick well. My 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 right. Rottweiler Yogi Bear was in a lot of pain from what turned out we think to be long bone cancer, and the vet was able to get fentanyl patches for me, which is used in humans who have serious like bone cancer. But it wouldn't even when he was shaved, it wouldn't stick. So we had to put like surgical grade staples to hold it on his skin. It was like oh, it was horrible. Do you mean you can make pain medications that come in a gel or a cream, and you would rub it into the animal, and it would go into their skin that way? Well, pain medication, it really depends on what the medication is. There's, there's limitations to what some of these transdermal vehicles can do. Um, and again, it depends. It's a species variability. It depends on the skin layer, the permeability, you know, the skin, the size of the pores, the type of medication that you're using, where it's being applied on the body. There's, a, you know, how much perfusion is going through that specific area of tissue. There's a lot of things to consider in how you use it. Typically, now, is that something that you know or the veterinarian knows? It's actually both of us. Um, what we do is we look at specifically the physio- anatomy and physiology of a pet. And we consult with the veterinarian going, okay, where are you looking to apply this? What type of medication are you looking to use? Um, how old is the pet? Um, how, how, what, what do you think, you know, as far as the perfusion and blood flow in that specific area? How much vasculature is there? Things like wow. that. And then you have to adjust for the medication that you're using because there's a number of variables that have to be considered. So it's usually around somewhere about eight to 10 variables that you have to consider before you make a transdermal medication just for a single pet. 
as opposed to some of these places that do some of the stuff where they mass produce it. We don't. We individualize it for that specific pet, for the age of the pet, where it's being applied, you know. Interesting. So if you had, so if you had an older pet and and like maybe the armpits, an area in a pet without long hair that probably is hard for them to get to, to lick it off and interfere. There's probably good, good blood flow there. That's one of the places on people that they can even take a temperature. I don't know if it's the same on a dog. Going back to the 30 flavors. um, So I'm a pet owner and I have to have my, my dog on X medication for life, whether it's, uh, you know, for seizures, let's say dogs with seizure stuff have to take medication all the life. Do you give me me, the pet owner, through the veterinarian or directly, a choice of chocolate cherry chip. I know not chocolate because it's a dog. Or, right. I mean, like, who gets to pick which of the 30? If you're going to have 30, how, I mean, you should make it take advantage of it. Do people have, like, a, a Ben and Jerry's list? It's actually the way it works is that the, the pet owner will actually tell the veterinarian, you know, and there'll be a conversation back and forth. That, you know, when you feed a treat to your pet, what do they like? Well, they like beef jerky treats or they like, you know, or if it's a you know if it's a bird, obviously birds don't eat beef. They eat, you, know, you do birds food. too. You do bird meditations. We do birds, stingrays, camels. We did a lion at the zoo. Oh done, my god! Um, giraffes, camels. Oh, you should uh, write a book. I know you don't have time to write a book. I would interview <laughs> you about the camel and the giraffe and a stingray. So people mm-hmm. with parrots have to give them medications. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's actually pretty common for birds to have some type of medication. No so, uh, so, and they and they pose a unique challenge. So, we've actually developed delivery systems specifically for medications for birds that actually improve improve the compliance. Wow, um, I have to so, have you come on my new show that's 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 just launching called Exotic Pets, which is anything that isn't a dog and a cat, but certainly avian. I like to say herps because it's my new word. Do you have any things for herps? We do. Oh, come yeah, on! It, seriously, it, I cannot stop yeah. you. It's, you know, it's funny is um, my partner is really into exotic animals. He really, he's like, really? he, he's, he's, a, he loves, he loves that aspect of it. So he does a lot of stuff. He gets a lot of phone calls with regards to like really kind of unique, you know, a lot of things with reptiles, um, snakes with like thermal burns from the rock, you know, those heating blankets and things oh, they have. Goodness. So like there's a snake with a thermal burn. Do we have something for that specifically to accelerate the healing of the thermal burn on a reptile? Um, because wow. they're always in a hot lamp or a hot rock or something like oh, that. So, you have to, so there's, yeah, there's all kinds, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that we do. Um, it's not just dogs and cats and, you know, and guinea pigs. What'd you do for the wife. lion at the zoo? Uh, with an ear infection. And we have a vehicle that's a customizable once a week application. So who wants to go near the lion <laughs> <laughs> every Twice single day with multiple Oh, like my gosh. So it's actually a vehicle that actually, is a, it's a sustained release medication that slow releases in the ear canal and then evaporates after a week. Wow. Can you use that on, on Cocker Spaniels, too? Yeah. Yeah, we use it on dogs, dogs cats. Oh, my God. Uh, rabbit, a lot on rabbits. rabbits on rabbits? Oh, rabbits are like our major customers on exotic pets. They're apparently the next most popular pet after dogs and cats in the country. So rabbits get ear things? Oh, I've got to get your partner to come on Exotic Pets and talk about all the different medications for all these exotic pets, which I hope would stop people from getting them who aren't prepared to do the, as Dr. Karen Rosenthal, my co-host says, the husbandry necessary to keep them happy and healthy because they require a lot of uh, environment modifications, right? Yeah, they do. You so don't, it, I mean, 
You want to make it, sure your hot rock is the right temperature and the right humidity and the right everything. Yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, there's with 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 obviously with reptiles, they have to have their own kind of like set microenvironment. Even like I said, what a rabbit too. It's they they like more of a serene kind of environment, you know, and so certain type of temperature works better for them as opposed to others. So it's not just like getting a pet and just having it in the house. It's not like a dog where you bring it in the house. And that's right. Give them an environment that's appropriate. And obviously now I understand why there are 30 flavors because some of them have to appeal to creatures that slither and crawl and flap their wings sure. and not just the ones that uh, walk around the litter box three times or around the block three times. Steve, it's so cool that you have this business, 10,000 square feet in Manhattan and you deliver to all the boroughs within the same day and overnight shipping to anywhere in the country. I, I, I can't imagine how many, you know, we all see the guys on the bikes with the Chinese food. I guess some of those people are actually delivering from Best Pet RX. And who they knows? actually are not. They're actually, they're actually bonded. They're on bonded couriers and trucks. <laughs> yeah, I figured, yeah. On the other hand, you could get a little like, you know, a chaser with your pizza for the, uh, for the parrot. I think it's really cool. It's so great. Manhattan is so full of so many wonderful secrets and, and you are a, obviously not a well-kept secret, but many of us didn't know about you. So I'm thrilled that the oncologists have you for all these pets with cancer that have to take so many different medications. At least you have the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicines go down only. Of course, it's not sugar. It's more like beef or something like that. Thank you so much for what you're doing for all these different species. And I'm very excited about my new show because now when people write in with exotic pet medical issues or, or uh, medication issues, I know where to send them. Well, they might already know. I, I don't suppose you have too much competition in that department. You probably own the space, right? Uh, actually, I mean, there is some competition with regards to it. Um, the thing that we do that kind of makes it unique is we actually have some technology that's proprietary and unique. That, that stuff that we only that we're the only place that does it. And those things are things that people are looking for where they've kind of gone to a competitor. They haven't been able to get a solution that they're really looking for that's adequate or is more difficult. And then we get the phone call for the really, really kind of hard. We do the easy stuff really, really well, but we also do the really hard stuff extremely well. So, so. It sounds that you like you have a lot of enthusiasm for it and a, a lot of uh, pride in it. And that's terrific. Thank you so much for coming on the show and keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Take care. Pleasure talking Take care. to you. Bye-bye. Sure. So those of you with kitties and, and dogs, hug them and kiss them. And if you have herps or rabbits or birds or anything like that, you can kiss and hug them too at will if that's, if that's your pleasure. Have a great rest of the day. Delightful spending time with you, and we will visit again next week. Bye for now.